Hey, good morning, City Light Church. My name is Gavin. Good to be with you all. I get to serve as one of our pastors here for our City Light Church family. Doc Gehring, thanks for reading the scripture this morning. And uh, Willie and Sarah, thanks for leading us. And that wasn't a terrible song you guys wrote. Thank you. That was amazing. Just a little song I wrote, just fiddling around on my guitar last night. No big deal. Not jealous at all. Well, here's a little sermon I wrote. Wrote it myself. <laughs> Didn't even get it off the internet or steal it from someone else. I promise. I wrote this. Hey, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we are going to hit verses 7 through the end. This is week 19 in our final week of the epistle of Colossians. Y'all, we're done. We made it through. Congratulations. Is it awkward? Like, do we clap? Like, we're glad it's over or it's been good? It's awkward. Uh, we're going to hit the last 12 verses, and it's a unique section of the Bible. This is what I call the shout-out section of Scripture. Uh, anytime I end a phone call with someone far away, um, oftentimes it'll end something like this. Hey, say hi to your folks for me. Miss you guys. If you think about it, pray for Grandpa. He's got a surgery this fall. Uh, Sarah and the kids say hi. Uh, if we don't see you at Christmas, hope you have a great Christmas. Love you guys. Bye. Something like that. It's sort of this junk drawer. Get all of your final well wishes and salutations in. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. So this is the end of the letter. We're going to hear a lot of personal comments about real people in this section. And for many of us, this is what we would call the flyover section of the New Testament, right? You get to this spot and it's like, well, it's like driving through Iowa. There's no reason to stop unless you're just driving through, right? You might fill up your gas tank, but... You're really just trying to get to Chicago. No reason to stop here, people. That's what it can feel like when we read this section. But uh, what I want to propose to you is that this section, not only is it important for us because God inspired it, it's included in Scripture, I would say that it's all the more important for us to dial into because in this section, after we've studied for 18 weeks, sort of the doctrine of Colossians, the theology of it, the, the meat of it, what we're going to see today is that this was written to very real human beings in a very real church at a re very real point in history. And we're going to see that um, um, you know, what it does, it kind of humanizes this whole text. It puts flesh on it. You with me? Am I really loud and reverberant in here? Do we sound okay? This is the Lord. As long as it's not distracting, that's heretical. I'm not the Lord. As long as you guys are with me, okay. I feel like I'm going to feed back. So that's the context of, of this letter. And I would say, not only does it sort of humanize the text, one of the reasons we see why it's so important, I think for us in particular, is understanding the context of this letter. Okay, we talked about this 18 weeks ago. Remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a new church. And this church is off to a great start. Uh, this church loved Jesus. They were a young church plant. They were fruitful for Jesus. They were growing in their faith. It was a church centered on Jesus Christ. And Paul writes this letter to this church. It's off to a great church, uh, start to remind them to stay faithful, to encourage them on. In their day, they were facing some cultural oppositions. In their day, uh, not unlike our own, it was not exactly in vogue to follow, love, and worship Jesus, Okay. So in, in ways very similar to our own, spirituality was cool, uh, pluralism was tolerated, superstition, that's an option, tolerance is celebrated, uh, is celebrated, but Jesus, well, let's not get too carried away with that guy. That was the culture of their day. 
And so Paul writes this letter to them, affirming them, saying, no, stay strong. Jesus is sufficient in life and death. Jesus is prominent and preeminent over this life and in the life to come, over salvation and uh, the present age. And so he encourages them, even in the face of opposition, when it's not popular, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Stay rooted in Jesus. As my friend John Wakefield always says at the door, keep on keeping on. Some of you have heard John Wakefield say that. Keep on keeping on. Well, that is Paul's message to the Colossians this morning, and that's the title of our scripture. The title of my sermon this morning is Keep On Keeping On. And as I think about our own church family, City Light, I think that this scripture couldn't be more uh, appropriate or pertinent or timing, uh, timely for us. Um, In many ways, you, church family, are so similar to this Colossian church. They were a young church, you're a young church. They were a faithful and fruitful church, and by God's grace, so far, you are a faithful and fruitful church. Uh, As I think about this church family, that five years ago, we were 75 people in a little chapel in Midtown. By God's grace, we're a few thousand people over some six churches and three cities, and it's like we're off to a great start. By God's grace, centered on the word of God, Jesus Christ and his gospel, we have been fruitful and faithful. And yet, the question before us is, will we be fashionable and trendy for a moment, or will we be a church that is faithful for generations in our own community? After you and I have gone to be with the Lord, will City Light be a church that's rooted in Jesus Christ and faithful, even in a a changing cultural landscape? And so uh, as we quickly run through our fifth year as a church family, I think this is an important sermon for us. So we're going to take a look at this faithful young church, and we're going to see seven attributes that were true of this church that Paul says keep going in that direction. And from those seven attributes of this church, I want to give us sort of seven points of coaching, encouragement from the Word of God that we too would keep on keeping on. And so just in case you thought you heard me wrong, yes, we have seven points this morning. And so get a snack, get comfortable, pop the shoes off. There's restrooms over here. We'll get you out by 2 a.m., 2 p.m. Happy Father's Day, fathers. Uh, Let's take notes. Number one, the first attribute of a persevering church is that a persevering church creates a culture of encouragement. Persevering church creates a culture of encouragement. Did you know that with, with few exceptions... Most everyone tends to be their own worst critic. Odds are, if you are someone who knows and loves Jesus, you're walking with him and serving him to the best of your abilities. And if I asked you, hey, how is your walk with God going and your ministry? And if I asked that same question about you to the people closest to you, your friends, your family members, your roommates, your city group members, hey, how's this person doing their walk with Jesus and their their ministry to him? I would probably hear two answers. Right? Most of you, if you're like me, would probably say, well, I'm not where I need to be. I wish I was closer with Jesus. I wish I could serve more faithfully. I just wish that I was at a different place. Most of the people around you would say, oh man, she's, she's a great example of the faith. She's a great encouragement to me. Our church is better. Our community is better because of her. I know that I personally fight to stay encouraged. I tend to be a little type A. I tend to just see all of my gaps in leadership and character and in the church and ignore the graces that God has shown us, and it can be a battle to stay encouraged. And I think that our enemy would love to keep the church discouraged in general, to keep our eyes off Jesus, to be focused on all of our own limitations. But I want to show you what Paul models for us in a persevering, healthy, persevering, healthy church this morning. I want to show you what he models for us in verse 7 when he gives this shout out to his friend Tychicus. Look at what he says. He says, 
Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. So remember, Tychicus is a, a friend of Paul. He's a ministry partner. He's been with him in jail. And now Tychicus is going to be the guy that carries this letter back to the church in Colossae. And Paul intentionally writes this note in the letter, taking a moment to affirm the character and ministry of Tychicus. He's letting this church know, hey, Tychicus is coming. We want you to know he's a good dude. We really love him. He is a faithful servant of God. He serves Jesus really well. And I want you to think about how do you think that made Tychicus feel to hear those words spoken about him? From the Apostle Paul, nonetheless. Have you, any of you ever been affirmed and encouraged by someone you really respect? It picks you up a little bit. And so Tychicus is going to hand deliver this letter, and there's going to be a church leader that's going to stand up on a Sunday morning, and they're going to read this letter out loud. And Tychicus is going to be in the room, and he's going to hear his name spoken out loud. Tychicus is a good man. He loves God. He's been faithful in ministry. I picture if I'm Tychicus, number one, I feel a little bit awkward because I don't like to be put on the spot, amen? But two, I think it's going to fill him up a little bit. I think it's going to give him some confidence that, man, no, the Lord is using me. I should stay faithful in ministry. I should stay at it. Furthermore, look at why Paul sends Tychicus in verse 8. He says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. So he's going to give a report about Paul in jail and that he may encourage your hearts. So he's sending Tychicus, why? To be an encouragement to the church, to remind them, hey, you may not be perfect, but you're doing well. You're a faithful church. I want to encourage you guys that you're doing better than you think you are. So the question is, how does a young, healthy church remain steadfast in the face of a changing cultural landscape, maybe against opposition? One thing that's going to be profoundly important for us is that we have a culture of encouragement. Guys, we need to lift one another up, amen? We need to remind each other the bright spots, where God is using us. And I want to say, as a church family, you guys are incredible at this. By and large, this is one of the most encouraging groups of people I've ever been around. I know I joke about, like, you know, when you send me the snarky email about the sermon, but that honestly almost never happens. The, the, the main ethos of this church family is one of building each other up, encouraging each other, calling out greatness, celebrating gifts. One place I see this is when we have young preachers in the pulpit. In the early days, when we'd have an intern preach, you know, there was kind of this like, oh, Chris isn't preaching, so it won't be funny. You know, like, where's Gavin? Did he take another Sunday off? Did he break another foot? What is going on? You know, who's, does this guy even shave? Has he read the Bible yet? You know, and what has happened is you guys have picked up on what we're trying to do. We're trying to cultivate and prepare young preachers for church planting. You guys know this isn't about one congregation, but a movement of saturating the area with gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church planters. And I've seen a culture shift to where now anytime a young preacher's in the pulpit, they are preaching to their biggest fans in the world. You guys pull out your foam fingers in the front row. Number one, these young people are preaching. It feels like they're preaching to their their grandmas and grandpas, moms and dad, big brother, big sisters, and you guys are rooting them on. And uh, even when they blow it, you guys always applaud for a new guy preaching. And I love that. There's a culture of encouragement and celebration. I see it when you guys thank the greeters at the door and the coffee servers and the people that are helping disciple children right in this moment. There is a culture of celebration and encouragement in this room. And I want you to say um, that creates an environment that draws people toward Jesus that reminds them there's a tangible love in being in the family of God. And additionally, I just would, would ask you, imagine what would it look like if we all 
increase that level of intentionality and creating that culture of encouragement. So here's my challenge for you. Just the way Paul encourages Tychicus, he's a faithful brother, faithful minister of Christ. He loves the Lord. I would encourage, if you see someone this week that you've noticed tangible change in their walk with Jesus, they're growing spiritually. If you have been blessed by them in ministry in some way, here's the encouragement. Would you actually tell them with words out loud what that meant to you? I think sometimes we, we have encouraging thoughts, man, this person is really growing. That really helped me. But sometimes they live and die in our heads, and they don't bear fruit because we don't actually say the words. And so I would just encourage you this week, would you help me in creating that kind of culture, just affirming people around you and creating a culture of encouragement. Second attribute of a persevering church is this. A persevering church lives as a spiritual family. We live as a spiritual family. City Light, I would say this. We're a five-year-old church. If we're going to stick it out for the long haul, we can never become primarily an organization, a Sunday morning event, a business that is producing religious goods and services. We need to remain and live as a spiritual family. I know this is one of the main themes that you're going to hear on Sunday mornings at City Light, and that's because it's one of the predominant themes that we see in the New Testament All over scripture, the idea is that we aren't just saved from hell to God. That is true, but we're saved into a spiritual family. And so let me just show you how Paul describes these church members in Colossae in just this shout out section. Verse seven, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother. Verse nine, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea. So Paul uses this explicitly familial language. These aren't just dudes, homeboys, buddies, men. They are beloved brothers. So it's explicitly familial language, and you can just hear his affection for these people. They're beloved. Later on in the next verse, when he talks about uh, Dr. Luke, the physician Luke, he says, the beloved physician. There's just a culture of family warmth. You you, you get the impression that these guys might really genuinely love and care for the well-being of each other. Amen? One name that's particularly striking uh, to me to get included in the family language is Onesimus. If you don't know Onesimus' story, Onesimus was a slave, and he belonged to a man named Philemon. Now, Philemon, the slave owner, lived in Colossae, was likely a member of this church. And we don't know the backstory, but at some point, Onesimus and Philemon got separated. Onesimus, the slave who was likely an escapee, a slave on the run, becomes a Christian, meets Jesus, gives his life to him. He meets the apostle Paul somehow in prison. And now Paul is going to send Onesimus back with Tychicus to Colossae, where who lives? Philemon, the former slave owner. And uh, he includes with this letter, an additional letter to Philemon, the slave owner, that says, hey, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you. And I want you to receive him not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And he says in this letter, it's in your Bible, I will pay the price necessary for his freedom, whatever it is, but I want you to know he is a brother in Christ now. Receive him. And in our text, it says, um, receive him back, not only as a slave, but as a brother. He says, he is one of you. And so here's this letter that would have been read to the whole community, and and he publicly calls, calls out Onesimus as a part of the spiritual family. So what I love about this is they are not just a family of people 
that look alike, think alike, um, experience life. This is a diverse family. Think about it. You've got former slaves and slave owners sitting side by side in the pews, singing songs to Jesus. Rich people, poor people, meeting in homes for dinner and laughter, encouragement in Christ. They are a spiritual family. And so City Light, I just want to say, it's a picture of a persevering church. And for us, can I just declare, we are not primarily an organization. We do not produce church services and sermons. We are a spiritual family. The people sitting to your left and to your right now, right now, those are your family members, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't really like the people that I'm sitting next to, to which I would say, sounds like Christmas in my family. I mean, that's a good reason, to, you know, good proof text that we are a spiritual family. And so I just want to say, if you're new to the church, uh, if you're looking for this kind of community, I want to say the people in this room the City Light Church family are some of the most encouraging, welcoming, hospitable people I have ever met and encountered in my life. And I realize suddenly we've got big and there's a big room now, but I want you to know that the, the fabric of this community is a spiritual family and you are welcome to be a part of it. Uh, if you're looking for tangible places to even start and take next steps, I'd steer you to two places. Uh, number one, would you consider joining a city group? These are smaller spiritual families that meet in homes to live on mission in our city and encourage each other. This week, 57 city groups will meet in homes. Uh, my city group is one of my favorite communities within the church and my favorite times of the week. And then my second encouragement would be join a serving team. I don't know about the ladies, but I can speak on behalf of a dude that sometimes, you know, Dick, if, if we wanted to become friends, if I said, let's just go get coffee and become a friend. It could be awkward, you know, just you know, sit and face-to-face and drink coffee, and I might have hot breath. We don't know what to say. Like, dudes generally don't form relationships well face-to-face. You know what we like to do? We like to be side-by-side, right? I don't want to drink coffee and hear about your—I want to dig a hole and plant a tree. I want to serve somebody, do something, and side-by-side, that bond, that friendship forms. Amen, fellas? And so for all of you, would you encourage joining a serving team, not just to fulfill some religious task or fill a gap, but it's one of the places uh, that community is really formed. I think that's how Paul got so bonded to these people as a spiritual family. They were on mission together, which brings me to the third point, which is that a persevering church is a church that works as a diverse team, works as a diverse team. Uh, What shows up in these 12 verses is actually this eclectic list of 11 different people that are called out by name. And this is a motley crew of characters. Let me just run through them really quick. I'll put them on the boards. Number one, we meet Tychicus, who is a pastor and a letter courier. We've got Onesimus, who's a runaway slave. We've got Aristarchus, who's a Christian prisoner. We've got Mark, who is a missionary that got fired by Paul. How'd you like that on your resume? Well, I was a missionary, but this guy named Paul, he was a little type A, said I couldn't go. Uh, We've got a guy named Jesus, and we don't know anything about him, but I imagine he grew up incredibly insecure with a name like that. Can you imagine just trying to live up to, like, hi, I'm Jesus, you know? Lord, no, not that Jesus, the other one, the other one. Uh, We've got Epaphras. He was the church planner of the Colossian church. We've got Luke. He was a medical doctor and a companion on Paul's travels. We've got Demas, who was a missionary with Paul, who later on quits that ministry. We've got Nympha, who was a house church hostess. We've got Archippus, a fledgling and insecure church leader. And we've got uh, Paul, who was an apostle and used to kill Christians. Now, if you've ever wondered where in the world do I belong? Can I say that the local church is the place for you? Amen? 
Everybody is welcome here. Not only welcome, it takes a diverse team to be a faithful witness to a diverse culture around us. Everybody's story is different, and we're going to tend to relate to the people that relate to our story. And so a few of the observations that I love just from this list of 11 names. Number one, I love that about half of this crew is Jewish and the other half is Gentile. This is a racially diverse squad, and Paul goes out of his way to point it out. He says these first three were of the uh, circumcision party, Paul was too, the others not so much. He's going to let them know it's racially diverse. I love that Onesimus is a part of this church team now. You know who Onesimus is going to have an incredible ministry with? Former slaves and current slaves. You put Onesimus on the door, and when people come and they're greeted by him, the slaves are going to come, they're going to see his I don't know if he has a branding tattoo or scars on his hands. They're going to know he was a slave, and they're going to to say, oh, this church is for me, right? If you just have Philemon greeting at the door and the slaves come to church, they're going to say, oh, I I might just go to the church down the street. They might not have donuts, but they also don't have slaves, so I'm going to take my chances. We're going to do breakfast before church. I love that Dr. Luke gets a shout-out. By the way, if you ever thought that the paid professional pastors are the most important people in the church, just remember that the majority of the New Testament was written by a layman. Paul the Apostle wrote the majority of the books by way of uniquely titled books in the New Testament at 13, maybe Hebrews, we're not sure, could be 14, probably not. He wrote 13 books, but they're short, okay, like Wayne State textbooks, short books, <laughs> Dr. Luke only wrote two books, but by way of brevity, volume and number of words, number of pages, uh, he wrote the most by way of volume. And so uh, just remember, Luke was not a professional pastor. He did not go to seminary. He didn't plan a church. He worked a normal job. He was a physician, worked a nine to five, and then he served the church family and he got to write the Bible. Not a bad gig. Amen. Additionally, I love that Nympha, the Citigroup hospitality leader, gets just as much real estate in Ephesians or Colossians as Epaphras does, the guy who planted the church. It's like Paul is showing us this picture that it, it takes a diverse squad, different giftings, different stories. We all come together. There's no hero. There's no CEO. There is one chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and then a diverse team working together to be a faithful witness in our generation. And so City Light, let me just say, if we're going to be a a persevering church and have a lasting and faithful witness in our generation, it's going to take all of us. And uh, I think that's been probably one of the most fun things for Chris and I and those who have been a part of this thing since the beginning is to see it's been an amazing diverse team. I'll never forget our very first baptism gathering Um, we had about 500 people at 40th and Nicholas and the day before John's out there with his push mower mowing this busted lot. Chris and I are there with the former, uh, former motorcycle gang member, uh, picking up needles and other things that I can't say from the pulpit. Uh, so the next day we could go and baptize people. So we've got gang members and retired guys and guys just hustling, trying to plant a church, working together as a team. And all along the way, it's been people with different gifts. It's not just seminary guys with doctorates. It's been blue-collar people. When there was no money, we were just trying to get going in Midtown that showed up and renovated a building. Even when we came out to West O, I'll never forget when a thousand chairs showed up in this building in a, in a uh, semi-truck on the loading dock. We thought, how are we going to get these out? So we sent the SOS on Facebook, and dozens of people showed up in the middle of the day. Some of you were here yesterday planting plants. And Dick, you're like 200 years old. You're out there in the sun <laughs> digging. It takes a diverse squad. It's that gritty retired farmer in you, man. You just never quit. 
I love that this morning there are young adults who don't have kids yet that said, I'm going to get up early and help disciple kids. I want to bless parents by helping disciple kids. I love that there are musicians leading and destroying their bass guitars to the glory of Jesus that are volunteers, that there are teachers who are teaching. So many of you open up your homes to help teach people how to walk with Jesus. I love that on Easter morning in Midtown, we had egg rolls. Like, why did you have egg rolls on Easter? I have no idea. But I was greeting at the door, and there was a young Chinese couple that had come to know Jesus. They're a part of the church family. And they came and said, we brought egg rolls. I said, who are they for? They said, the church. I said, like, just everybody? Yeah, it was Easter, so we wanted to bring something to share. So they brought like 400 egg rolls. And I thought, how do I not embarrass them? No one is going to eat egg rolls at 9 a.m. And we set them out by the donuts. They were gone in 10 minutes. I was like, I love this church family. We got egg rolls on Easter. This is such a weird crew, and I absolutely love it. Our church is awesome. And so I just want to say it takes a diverse, eclectic team. And I would encourage you, man, be a part of this diverse team and, uh, and jump in. You might say, well, where do I start? It feels big. I don't know what my giftings are. I would just pastorally ask you three questions. Number one, what are the gaps that you see in the church? A lot of times people say, man, there's this huge need. Why doesn't God have someone in the church move toward this huge need in our culture, in our city? And if I could just politely remind you, you are someone in the church, and maybe God is asking you to move toward that need. Amen? Our current reality, we have 2,600 people and eight paid pastors. So if I could just gently remind you, everything that hits our inbox doesn't get executed. It literally can't. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to lead faithfully. We're going to shepherd. We're going to marry, bury, lead, do the best we can. But the team is us. So if you see a burden, how can we help encourage, inspire you to step into that gap? Number two, I would ask you to ask, what are the unique gifts and passions you have? For some of you, you say, man, if we don't reach the next generation, we're done. I would say, great. Can I help you volunteer on Sundays? We just got a brand new youth pastor, Patrick. He's going to be launching hard this fall. How can we get you trained and energized to help reach our high school and junior high campuses right here? Some of you, I'll just say it, some of you make a whole bunch of money. And, and it's the responsibility of the entire church to give faithfully tithes and offerings. We absolutely believe that. But for some of you, you might say, part of my ministry is funding the Great Commission. I might not ever preach a sermon, but I make a whole bunch of money to the glory of God. Would that be your unique calling is funding the Great Commission? Number three, I would say, um, what are the hard parts of your story? What are the things that you've overcome? Oftentimes, God takes our misery and turns it into our ministry. What are the obstacles, the challenges? What has God healed you from? What are the addictions that you have overcome? You are perfectly suited to help someone that is right now where you were before God brought you through it. Amen? And so I would encourage you, it's going to take a whole team. What are your passions? What are you good at? What is your story? How would God use you? If we're going to persevere, it's going to be a diverse team. Number four, fourth attribute of a persevering church is a church that is devoted to the Word of God. So the Apostle Paul, as an apostle, writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It becomes the inerrant, infallible word of God. He then sends it with Tychicus to the church in Colossae. And here is his instructions to them in verse 16. He says, And when this letter has been read among you, since the beginning of the church, when Jesus rose from the grave, The local church has always been centered on the living, inerrant, vibrant, and powerful Word of God. The Colossians church would have read the Word of God out loud. They would have committed it to memory. They would have worked it out. They would have applied it to their own lives. And uh, then they would have passed it on and received another letter. 
at the very inception of the local church in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the Bible, everybody. Devoted to the Bible. When a church jettisons a high view of God's word and no longer commits itself to the Bible, that church will be dead within one generation. Guaranteed. City Light, let me just remind us we love the Bible. This is God's words to us. It is breathed out by God. It is useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is God's plan of salvation to us. It's how we rightly understand him. It is how the voice of God speaks to us. And one of our greatest convictions is that we are going to take the word of God seriously. Amen? We've often said it. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do take God and his word seriously. And uh, I've just had this observation this is not in the text. Uh, put an asterisk next to this uh, as I say it. It's just If I can just step on a soapbox for a minute. My observation has been this. In general, not always, but in general, when you find a church that's committed to the Word of God, they love the Word of God, they tend to be a little uptight, rigid, stiff, and almost mad about it. You know, like, We love the Bible! Are you sure? Because your face doesn't communicate love. You know, like I... Do you have to, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. I know I memorized it. Well, tell your face, because once again, (laughs) a lot of Bible, not a lot of joy. You know, I've been to other churches where we're going to have a great worship experience, and it's high energy, and they are fun people. I'm like, these are my people. There's high fives, and there's hugs, and there's like, I'm well, I love, this is nice. No one's stiff and uptight, and you're loving it, and you're 50 minutes in, you're like, this is awesome. Then it dawns, and you're like, are they going to? Are going to get to a verse? Are we, like, this is fun, but like the Bible part, you ever going to read a verse? And what I noticed in Colossians is that you find um, a very different picture. You get this picture of these people in Colossae that actually love each other. Remember, there's this familial affection. It's a culture of encouragement. They're building each other up. They're welcoming and hospitable. And you get the vibe that they actually like each other. And yet they submit to and have a high value of God's word. And I would just say, would that be true of us? If we're going to be a lasting church, a persevering church, we cannot let go of a high view of Scripture. It must remain the centerpiece. And yet, um, I just believe we can do that, have a high view of the Bible, and we can still sometimes make fun of fake universities like Wayne State Elementary School (laughs) and balding pastors with thick thighs that still try to squeeze into the the skinnies. But anyway, (laughs) neither here nor there. Uh, Fifth attribute of a persevering church— A persevering church is one that celebrates other churches, is a church that celebrates other churches. Now, the church in Laodicea was a different church in a different community right around the corner from the church in Colossae. And look at verse 16, what it says. It says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also, uh, and see that you also read the letter from uh, Laodicea. And so the common practice for these early churches in this day would have been to circulate Paul's letters. So they would have received this letter from Tychicus. They would have read it out loud. They would have copied it down. And then they're going to do a book swap. They're going to exchange this letter. He says, get the letter from the Laodiceans. This is most likely the church uh, or the New Testament book of Ephesians that the Laodiceans had. And so it's circulating back to the Colossians. The Colossians letter is going to get to the Laodiceans on its way, likely to the Ephesians. And so what we see are multiple churches working together for the good of the big C church. And we see it all over the New Testament, all over the Bible. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes about the Macedonian church. This is a super busted, poor church, and yet Paul says that out of their poverty, with great joy, they gave generously to their sister church in Jerusalem. So we've got multiple churches working together like one church for the common good of the gospel. Churches that persevere and remain healthy and fruitful are churches that have rightly identified their friends and their foes. Are you with me? Church, our foes are sin, Satan, and death. And our friends are the churches down the street. Are you with me? We don't compete with other churches. We don't compare with other churches. We don't bash other churches. In so much as they are aligned with the word of God and his gospel, we partner with other churches for the glory of Jesus and the good of our city. Uh, Many of you guys know, not that long ago, our, our most recent church plant was Providence. And uh, Providence was a fun church plant. They're just like a mile and a half from our Midtown location for this church family. And uh, you guys remember, we sent our beloved college pastor, Andrew Rutten, one of our just coolest budding teachers, and we sent about $100,000 to invest in that church plant, and they got uh, started right up the street. But you guys remember, we didn't do it alone. So Christ Community Church sent their beloved college pastor, Jared Cleaver. They invested $100,000, and it was a really cool example of two churches working together to start a new autonomous church in a different part of the city. And while that was already a huge win for the kingdom of God, the part of the story that I love the most is what came next. So Providence Church, they're growing, they're doing well, uh, they're renting a space, the Pella Reception Hall, and they only have it on Sundays. So the church is growing, their staff team's growing, but they have no place to office. And then a third church, LifeGate Church, got wind that they didn't have any office and said, hey, we've got a whole building at 56th and Leavenworth, our Midtown building, and no one's using the second floor. Would you guys like to office in our space? You can use the office, the copier, the Wi-Fi, the bathrooms, have meetings, all that free of charge, it's all yours. And I think, man, that's an amazing, that kind of unity and partnership gladdens the heart of God. Did you know that? When he looks down and see churches working together, not for their own glory, their own little kingdoms, but saying, how can the kingdom of God advance in our city? That gladdens the heart of God and strengthens his church on this earth. So apparently it doesn't get you excited, but I thought that was really cool. So Churches that work together are churches that persevere. Number six, churches that persevere are churches that spur on the faint-hearted. We see this in verse 17. It's a unique little verse of the Bible. Verse 17 says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't get any commentary. We don't get a lot of detail. We have no idea what's going on in Archippus' life at this moment, but we know he's received a calling— He's supposed to do something, serve the Lord, and yet he's fledgling. He's not moving forward. He is maybe insecure. We don't know what's going on. But what we do know is that Paul calls not only one person, but the whole church to rally around this dude. Remember, this letter is going to be read out loud to the whole church. And so I picture Archippus. He's probably in the back somewhere over there. He's got a donut and a coffee. He's taking notes on his iPhone. And then he gets to verse 17. And the preacher says to the whole church family, hey, see to it that Archippus stays faithful in his ministry to the Lord. And I want to say this. City Light, in various seasons of our church, there will be people who are going to be ready to throw in the towel. And maybe that they're discouraged, that some people left their city group, they may doubt their own abilities, they may wonder if they really have anything to offer, they may even get dinged up by a fellow church member. And Paul shows us in verse 17 that the responsibility falls on the whole church family 
to look out for the dinged up and the faint-hearted and the ones that want to throw in the towel and to rally around them and encourage them not to throw in the towel, to keep their chin up, to stay faithful, to keep on keeping on. In the summer of 2006, I was the discouraged brother. I had recently become a Christian. I was studying accounting at UNO, heard a call into ministry, which is a whole nother long story that's still weird to me that I'm a pastor, but God said, do this thing, so I'm stepping into it. Uh, buttoned up my undergrad degree, interned at a church, and was loving it. I'm doing a seminary program through distance ed. I'm cutting my teeth and teaching and in leading, and I'm thinking, this is incredible. We're seeing God work. I get, to, I get to do this. This is amazing. I was like a golden retriever puppy, just like ready to go every day, rearing and roaring and so excited about what was, God was doing. And about one year into that process, I got really dinged up by a church leader that I had trusted. And what was my fault was that I had this guy put way too high on a pedestal that no sinful man ever belongs to, belongs on. So I can blame no one for myself for the hurt that I took on, and yet it was real. And it stung. In summer 2006, I was done. I wasn't done with Jesus. I wasn't ready to jettison my faith, but I was definitely done with the idea of pastoral ministry. I was hurt. I was disillusioned. I had a hard time trusting the motives of Christian leaders pastors and I, it was just, I didn't trust them. It was a really weird place to be as a young Christian. And I thought, man, I'm going to walk with Jesus, but I'm going to stay arm's length to the local church. Don't trust the motives. And I'm just going to get a job doing anything else. I remember actually going to monster.com. I don't even know if that's a website anymore. Is that still a website? Well, a hundred years ago, monster.com. I went to monster.com and actually applied for a Mossy Oak regional sales rep position. And uh, I didn't even know what that meant, but I pictured myself in camo in a tree stand, like making sales calls. And I thought, this is the Lord's new calling. This is what the Lord has called me to do. And God sent a man named Jack Arendt, who now serves as an elder at our church, to tell me what Paul told the Colossians to tell Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received, where? In the Lord. Archippus, this isn't about this other person. This isn't about your experience. This isn't about what you've gone through. It's about the Lord Jesus, and he has called you to it. And I know you're dinged out. I know you're faint-hearted. I know you're ready to throw in the towel. And yet, this ministry is about Jesus. And Jack put his arm around me. He cried with me when I cried. Uh, he called out my BS when I was exaggerating the, system, or the, the situation. And he said, Gavin, be faithful to the Lord. Stay in it. In fact, I will go with you. I'm going to be your wingman. I'm going to be in your corner. I'm going to be your cut guy. I'm going to stay with you. Stay at it. And I guarantee you, if Jack didn't come in in that season, <clears throat> I got something in my throat. Excuse me. I think I swallowed a bug. If Jack had not come in in that season, I guarantee you City Light Church would not have been planted five years later. And so I just say, City Light, can, you, can I invite you to join me in keeping your eye open for the faint-hearted among us? Uh, would we be a church that moves toward the discouraged, toward the hurt, toward the person who is checking out, and be that voice that is so important in the church, and it's on all of us, that says, I see you, I know you're going through something, that's okay, let me pray for you, but stay in the game. Jesus loves you, he is with you, the church needs you, I'm going to walk beside you, let's stay at it. So a persevering church is one where there's a culture of running after the dinged up and the faint-hearted. Uh, last one, number seven, a persevering church is a church that stays rooted in the gospel of grace, rooted in the gospel of grace. Here's the very last verse of Colossians. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. In other words, pray for me. I'm in prison. And finally, he says, grace be with you, period. End of the book. 
The Apostle Paul finishes this book the very same way he began it. Chapter 1 and verse 2, what does he say? Grace be with you. That's his first prayer for this church and his last prayer for this church. Grace be to you. If you're new to the Bible and don't know what grace is, grace by definition is the undeserved kindness and favor of God given through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace is when God treats you and me in ways that we don't deserve, but in ways that Jesus, God's sinless son, deserves instead. Grace is God's radical, one-way, unthinkable, unearnable, saving, sanctifying, and sustaining work given freely to sinners like you and me to save us and carry us on that we don't deserve, but he gives it to us when we receive it by faith. Paul's simply reminding the Colossians, keep your eyes, attention, devotion, and affection on Jesus Christ and the work that he did for you. City Light, if we ever take our eyes off Jesus, if this thing ever becomes about a charismatic leader, a political agenda, a trite religious system, and no longer about the grace of Jesus Christ, we're done. But Paul's prayer for the Colossians church is my prayer for us, church family, that God's grace would rest on us, that the defining truth of our church isn't that we are awesome, but that God has been kind to undeserving sinners who now radically love him and serve him in response. The grace of God to us. In closing, I just want to remind us of that gospel picture, that great picture of grace. I want to remind us that before this Colossian church was ever persevering in the face of a changing culture, before we should ever strive to persevere as a faithful church in our generation, we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ persevered for us. Jesus persevered when his best friends fell asleep on him. He persevered when he was sold out for a few pieces of silver. Jesus persevered when he was mocked, beaten, and falsely accused. He persevered on the cross. Jesus didn't tap out early, but he persevered with joy, and he fulfilled the mission that God had sent him for, the mission of our salvation, the reconciliation of an entire broken world back to a perfect and holy God. He defeated sin and death by rising from death to live in victory forever, and he did so out of immense love and affection for you. Jesus loves you. That is the grace of God.